0: Hey, once again, welcome to the show. This is a gathering
1: place. It's a safe place for people to safely rebel in wrong think. And with that in mind, I am pleased to welcome one of my favorite wrong thinkers, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, good to connect up with you once again today.
2: Oh, likewise, Brian. I continue to have the horrible bad form and bad taste to show my face. How about yourself?
1: (laughs) Most people thank me for wearing a mask, but no, I I do try to show it where I can. (laughs) You know, the, the beard yeah, that's wasn't a good enough. Point.
2: <laughs> that's a good point. I must I must radiate my beauty to the world.
1: That's a good way to look at it. That's just it's just self confidence. Why would somebody ask me to put away my sunshine? So <laughs> I want to talk about some current events. And and Eric okay. I, I'm actually you and I talked a little bit before we jumped on the air here. Uh, it's it's encouraging to see that I'm not the only person who's looking around going. Dang, this is looking kind of bleak right now. Uh, and not that yeah. I'm trying to be a bummer, and not that you have a you know a pessimistic outlook, but let's take a look at realistically what are we looking at as we head into the final month of 2020. Um, what what do you see from from your vantage point?
2: Well, it looks like uh, El Jefe uh, Biden has become the the selected El Presidente of this banana republic. Uh, I understand that a lot of people want to. Uh, hold out the hope that somehow the courts are going to reverse what appears to me to be pretty systemic fraud, but I'm not at all optimistic about it. The reason I'm not optimistic about it is because this is the same Supreme Court that affirmed the constitutionality of Obamacare, led by Justice John Roberts, who somehow found in the Constitution power for Congress to compel Americans to buy health insurance. Um, I think they've got pictures of him with a goat, and I think it's extremely unlikely that the Supreme Court is even going to hear the case let alone uh, rule in favor of Trump. Unfortunately, I, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope that my, my almost 30 years of experience as a journalist um, and the cynicism that I've acquired as a result of that is off on, on this one. I, I would love very much to be proved wrong, but I think that the selection of El Presidente is inevitable at this point.
1: I did appreciate, uh, let me think, who was it was referring I think it was Glenn Greenwald was referring to it as the, uh, the office of the stolen election.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, does it matter? I mean, the fact, its that it's, there's really an interesting parallel here between the selection, as I'm going to call it from here on out, and uh, the mass hysteria about the Wu flu. We have abundant facts available to us about fraud. You know, you can look at the numbers. You can look at this hard data that strongly suggests that there is fraud. Does it matter? I don't think so. We've got the facts about the Wu flu, that 99.8% of people don't die from it, and yet all we hear is the cases, the cases, the cases, And people are out there wearing their holy rags, their face diapers, because that's what they see and hear on on CNN and NPR. And they hear and see on CNN and NPR that Joe Biden won the election. So it's a fait accompli.
1: Well, here's the tightrope I'm trying to walk, and, and maybe you can relate to this. On the one hand, I'm going to be free. That's a decision I made a long time ago. I'm at peace with whatever the consequences are, but I am going to live as a free man or at least as free as I possibly can under the circumstances. I'll continue to speak up in defense of freedom. Having said that, I really don't have any control over what happens at the national and supranational level. Yep. And so, it, like you said, it doesn't matter as much to me. Um, frankly, I, I feel sorry for whoever is inaugurated on January 20th because I think they are going to be presiding over the biggest hot mess that any world leader has ever had to preside over. And I don't envy them.
2: Well, I think that they uh, are, are champing at the bit because what they care about is power and influence and money, and they're going to have that in abundance. They don't care about the misery that's been inflicted on the populace. If anything, the misery that's been inflicted on the populace redounds to their benefit because they can reframe that as, I'm your savior, I'm your leader, just do as you're told, as Fauci has been telling us. That's what they're into, and I think Americans need to understand that, that you know, you can't evaluate what politicians do by the standards of the psychologically normal. You know, people like you and I don't look at things in terms of how are we going to manipulate people, how are we going to get control over them and tell them what to do and and, and fleece them. We don't look at the world that way, and we have a difficult time understanding anybody who does look at the world that way.
1: Well, and, and I don't like to be played. If I get the if I get an inkling or a hint that someone is trying to play me, whether it's a con man or, you know, the guy, the out of breath guy on the street trying to sell me a TV, uh, you know, my mm-hmm. my antennas start twitching, and and it, I I really yep. I resent the fact that somebody thinks I could be played so easily, and so my my goal, as much as possible, is to make myself an unplayable piece on their chessboard.
2: Yep. Yeah, and critical thinking helps with that. Asking questions. Uh, helps with that. Refusing to just take things on faith helps with that. Unfortunately, all too many people do take things on faith and and no longer have the capacity to think critically, and practically uh, install the uh, the the bit in their own mouths and 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 put the uh, uh, the reins in the hands of the person who wants to lead them around the ring. It's really sad.
1: Talk to me about uh, some of the things in your mind that that help. Make that more difficult for the person who wants to wind us up like toys to uh, to accomplish their goals. What can we do to fortify ourselves against being a playable piece?
2: Well, there's we've talked about this one before, and this is to me such an obvious one, and this is why I'm so baffled by the way the effective the effectiveness of it. We hear constantly about the cases, the cases, right? Everywhere you turn, it's the cases, the cases. Now, the way my mind works is to ask the follow-up question, well, okay, but what does that mean? Does that mean that you're going to die if you're a case? And what exactly is a case? Does that mean you've tested positive? Okay, well, does that mean that you're going to get sick? Does that mean you're going to get really sick? I don't know how it is that, that other people don't ask these questions, but they don't. And it seems to me that so many of them simply automatically, reflexively equate the cases with imminent death. And that's why we've got this hysteria out there, notwithstanding that most people aren't dying from this. But people believe or feel that everybody is going to die from this because all they hear about is the case is the cases.
1: No, I, I hear you. So what's missing is context, right? We hear the case and we don't know, is that somebody on a respirator? Or is it somebody who doesn't even have any symptoms who just happened to mm-hmm. test positive?
2: well they're not even asking for the context that's the thing the media just constantly regurgitates the cases the cases the cases they don't you know it's it's up to the public to demand answers to the follow up questions to pose the follow up questions to say okay well that's fine you have have said that there are 5000 new cases in the state today will you please deconstruct that and tell me how many of those people are actually sick How many of those people are actually seriously sick? How many of those people have actually died? Instead, people just respond in a Pavlovian sense when they hear the cases and they flip out and they just put on their face diaper and lock up their businesses and and do what they're told. So
1: I'm curious, I want to get your take because I believe you are a form of alternative media. You have your platform, ericpetersautos.com from which you can write and proclaim truth. Um, there's a lot of distrust in media right now. A lot of people are waking yep. up to the idea media is the enabler of a lot of this authoritarian overreach. What opportunity do you see from the current crap show <laughs> that's going on in terms of of uh, you know places for for new platforms or for alternative media? It would seem that this would be a ripe opportunity.
2: Well, there's plenty of opportunity. It's a question of whether people are going to take advantage of it. That's the tragedy, one of the tragedies of our times in that we have this this access to information, including really good factual information, but people being lazy just go right back to the same feeding trough. Um, For example, we constantly hear complaints, legitimate complaints, about the way these big tech oligarchies that run the social media platforms, Twitter and Google, uh, Facebook – are doing all these nefarious things. But how many people are actually willing to just stop using Facebook, stop tweeting, stop using Google, and use the alternatives instead? Not that many people. And that's just a, a terribly sad thing.
1: No, that's a good point. And, and it's because we're creatures of habit. Uh, my only hope is that the, the discomfort, if not anger, that, uh, that people are feeling towards politicians who clearly have one set of standards for themselves and and their enablers in the mass media, um... I'd like to think that the mask is slipping enough that people would be willing to break their habits just out of frustration that, look, I'm not going to be played like this anymore.
2: I hope so, and also I wish, as a journalist, and I'm speaking now as a member of the profession, I I would like to see a return to the expectation that, that news is not political, that you report the facts and you let the audience analyze and interpret the facts, you don't editorialize constantly. You don't lecture constantly. You don't deliberately leave out relevant facts. You don't use your platform to manipulate people. The contempt for journalism, I think, derives from the fact that journalism is now simply advocacy. You can't find straightforward news any longer. There's probably always been a bias to one degree or another uh, in the media because you know we all have our opinions, and, and some of these things get expressed unconsciously just in the words that we use and so on. But it's gotten it's gotten rancid. It's now, it's Soviet, the way things are politicized, and the way every single sentence, every word has to have some kind of political freight loaded onto it, such that it's contemptible, and the result of that is people line up with whatever political side they want to hear. So you've got the conservatives who listen to Fox and the right-wing media, and you've got the liberals who listen to CNN, and there really isn't any objective, legitimate journalism out there anymore, at least not in the mass market sense.
1: Okay, we'll be back
0: right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from EP Autos is
1: my guest And Eric, there's a topic I want to tackle in this second segment that uh, you are uniquely qualified to be uh, commenting on, and that is uh, automobiles. And in particular, I noticed you had a couple of uh, columns. One of them really caught my eye because it said, don't buy a new car. Yep. What's your thinking Uh,
2: there? Well, my thinking is, uh, to get back to the business of the the selection of El Jefe Presidente, If this man actually is enthroned as the president, he's told us what his plans are for cars, particularly uh, internal combustion-powered cars, which are essentially going to be extincted by regulatory fiat by 2030. And, of course, that number keeps popping up all the time, doesn't it? So one very bad reason to buy a new car is the depreciation on the new car. But can you imagine the depreciation um, that is going to ensue when it becomes plain that whatever car you buy in 2021 will become functionally useless nine years later by 2030 because you either won't be able to drive it many places, let's say, or because um, Biden has jacked up the, ca- the taxes on gasoline such that we're paying 7 or $8 a gallon on gas. That is going to kill the market for non-electric cars. That's what's coming, and that's one very good reason to not buy a new car right now
1: okay no that's i I can see it'm I'm, I'm trying to picture though in my mind how <laughs> excuse me how we would uh, let ourselves be painted into that corner, but then again, looking at the the sum total of how people are behaving, maybe it's not yeah. that that big of a stretch
2: sure how we've been, we've been painted into the corner of shuttering our businesses, closing down our lives, and walking around with a ridiculous holy rag on our faces
1: no good point now. You also, though, offer a solution in another column, and you say, look, it's not that, you know, people need vehicles, our our vehicles wear out, Mm -hmm. but you advise uh, if you're going to buy a vehicle, instead look at a used one, and particularly you recommend a particular type of vehicle.
2: Yeah, older vehicles in general um, are as uh, disconnected as you can get, uh, as opposed to the modern connected car which is wired into the hive mind, and in some cases, as far as these electric cars in particular, Tesla provides a good example, can be controlled without your consent remotely via updates, just in the manner that a cell phone can be controlled uh, uh, that way. So I got to thinking about, well, how do you disconnect? And one really good way is to buy a vehicle that doesn't have all of these electronic systems, and even better, one that is almost completely independent of external control, which would be an old truck, with a mechanically injected diesel engine. Those things will run literally without electricity. You don't even need a battery to start one. If you roll it down the hill, have a manual transmission. Uh, You can get the engine started that way and once they're running, because they're mechanical, they don't even need an alternator to continue to run. They will run and run and run and run. And because they're older diesels, they can use fuel that you can make which is a pretty spectacular attribute. You can use waste vegetable oil, you can have soybean oil, almost any kind of fuel of that nature can be burned in one of these old diesel trucks. And that's why these things, uh, their value is going up uh, like you wouldn't believe if you look at the at the market for them right now. So I recommend snatching one up while you still can afford one.
1: I think in your article you particularly you know put some praise forward for the, uh, the Dodge uh, Cummins diesel engine. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yep, the inline 5.9-liter six-cylinder uh, mechanically injected diesel, which came out in, I think, 1989, and I think they continued to sell that until 1997, I think, in 98, is when they went over to the electronic fuel injection version. Of course, electronic fuel injection means you got to have electricity, uh, you got to have alternators, and most of these later model diesels also have very elaborate emissions controls, things like uh, DEF, diesel exhaust fluid, um, particulate traps, uh, and it cannot run on homebrew or waste vegetable oil unless they're heavily modified.
1: You know, and there, there was another aspect of this that you pointed out, and that is, let's just say, hypothetically, that uh, there may be hard times ahead. Just, hypothetically speaking, yeah. tell me the advantage of having a, a vehicle like a truck, something rugged like a pickup.
2: Well, among other things, it's it's ideal to get through peaceful process, protesters, isn't it? Bingo! Um, it's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice, big, heavy vehicle. It's a sturdy vehicle. Uh, it's a vehicle that can travel on unimproved uh, roads, roads that aren't maintained. Let's say infrastructure starts to fall apart, uh, the potholes become Grand Canyon-esque, and your car is no longer able to get over those roads. Also, I think if things get really bad, it will be nice to be as far away from the bad stuff as possible. And uh, let's say you relocate to a place where it's a gravel road or rutted gravel road way up the side of a mountain. You're not going to get up there or down in a car, but a truck will be able to get up there and down without a problem.
1: Yeah, and just so people understand, I mean, we're not sitting here wargaming, you know, a, a road warrior, you know, scenario. But it's just it's looking at the, the bigger picture, zooming out to 25,000 feet and saying, okay, what does the future look like? You nailed it. It looks like uh, you know, the, the fatwa for uh, you know, low emission vehicles is going to paint a lot of us into a corner. And mm-hmm. in particular, one of the things that intrigues me is the ability to work on your own car because that's something that Absolutely. seems to be getting less common all the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. These uh, these diesel vehicles, and these aren't even that ancient. We're talking about vehicles that were made up through the mid '90s. Are extraordinarily simple and very amenable to home repair, to buy the side of the road repair. They really don't need very much other than fuel for 300,000 miles, uh, which might be just enough to get you through the Great Reset. And by the way, I don't think it is paranoid. To start thinking about a Mad Max type scenario, you know, the the country literally is coming unglued. Things are not good, and it wouldn't take much for everything to come entirely apart. So I think it's very prudent to be war gaming, as you put it, these scenarios and making plans accordingly. You know, the
1: the only um, sense of uh, discouragement that I felt as I read your article was I've been keeping an eye out for used trucks and uh, they apparently are becoming as rare as an obtainium in, in some corners just because I think other people have had the same idea. It's hard to yeah, find sure. a they don't quality want to sell used them. truck.
2: Yeah, I mean, even the ones that aren't diesel, you know, aren't half tons or three quarter tons, I've got an 02 Nissan Frontier, and it's a little two-wheel drive truck. Um, you know, nothing about it that's particularly, uh, you know, massively rugged or heavy duty. Now, I paid... Seventy-seven hundred bucks for that thing ten years ago, and right now I could turn around and sell it for forty-five to five. Wow!
1: Well, supply and demand. This is here's, yeah. a, here's a good applied lesson for would-be economists.
2: Absolutely. So I, I just think it's a it's a sound idea. Trucks um, trucks are also uh, a, a safe bet. Let's say everything really goes well, and and uh, us gloomy gusses are wrong, and um, it's smooth sailing. And a year from now, we can look back on all of this. Uh, as being overstated and overhyped, that truck is still going to be worth whatever you paid for it. And if you decide you don't want it, you can turn around and sell it and not lose any money. Okay.
1: Now that, that makes sense as well. Eric, we're down to about 90 seconds here. Mm-hmm. Let's take a moment, talk about your website. I want people to be aware of uh, the resource that is available to them at epautos.com. What would you want them to know?
2: Well, one of the things that uh, maybe they'll be interested to know is that I'm happy to field any questions they may have about any topic, whether it, whether it's about a new car, a used car, motorcycle, classic car, or whether it is a political question, anything they'd like to pick my brain about. Um, we have a little button that follows every article uh, that says "Ask Eric," and you can click on that, and it, it'll it'll pull up a box, and you can shoot me an email, and I will do my very best to answer it and provide the information and facts that you need. It's just something that I do as a courtesy. There's there's no transaction or money involved there. It's just a, just a little feature I have on the site.
1: Okay, take 30 seconds, and let's give a shout-out to your sponsors.
2: Oh, sure. Well, let's see. Um, among my favorites, of course, Valentine 1 radar detectors. I think that you are naked on the road if you don't have a good radar detector. And Valentine 1, in my opinion, and um, based on the facts, makes the best radar detector on the market. They've recently updated theirs to get rid of a lot of the junk K and KA signals that were besetting radar detectors. Um, Also, a huge fan and and strongly recommend the use of AMSOIL lubricants. Um, Really top-shelf stuff for your car, your truck, uh, your motorcycle, even for your outdoor power equipment.
1: Okay. Eric Peters, thank you so much for our weekly visit.
2: I feel better each time we talk. Likewise, Brian. Continue to show your face.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the
1: show. Again, you can always find articles and uh, links to the various guests interviewed on The Brian Hyde Show at the Brian Hyde Show. Com. I feel like I'm talking about myself in the third person. and Frankly, that makes Brian Hyde just a little uncomfortable when he catches himself doing that. All right. I saw a picture posted on Facebook earlier this morning that just made me stop and go, should I say something or not? People are going to think, okay, this is the low-hanging fruit. You're just taking a swipe at it and, you know, away I go. But uh, it, it was a picture of a bunch of students in a band concert. They, they looked to be... High school age, I mean, they could be college age. I, frankly, my, my ability to judge people's age is getting worse the older I get. But here's the thing. So here these students are taking part in this concert. We're looking at the wind section of the, uh, of the uh, orchestra or the band. You know, they're, they're all sitting there playing their instruments, dutifully wearing their masks. Now, if you're a musician or if you have kids who've been in band, you probably, how could they do that? Because don't some of those instruments require, you know, direct contact to the lips and, you know, the perfect pursing of the mouth in order to get the sounds to come through the instrument and you would be right? Well, the answer is, uh, if you look carefully at the photograph, you'll notice that there's there's a hole carefully cut for the mouth in every single mask. Let me just allow that to sink in for a moment because I, I know, you know, how, how the thought process goes, or at least if you're like me, it's like, okay, so isn't the mask supposed to cover their mouth to prevent their breath from directly, you know, inhaling, exhaling without being, you know, filtered through the material? hmm Yeah, that's, that's about the long and short of it. So what good does it do to have a hole cut through the mask? And therein is the rub. And this is just my opinion. You know, I mean, I I don't want to sound like I'm going off on a tirade here, but it's stuff like that, that that makes me believe that masks are much more about, this is the outward badge of compliance than an actual, wow, that's a substantive, you know, measurable way of improving and protecting people's health. Anyway, sorry to go off on a tangent there, but it's just... I've really found myself uh, focused on the the public health hysteria that is directing so much of our decisions, and that would include decisions like what we just you know saw with these students wearing masks with a hole cut through the middle of them. It just doesn't make a ton of sense to me, and so I, I have to ask myself, well, what uh, what exactly is it all for? Isaac Morehouse, actually, uh, he's the the founder of Praxis asks that same question, and I like his answer. Now, you may not agree with it, and that's okay. There is no implied requirement by virtue of the fact that you're listening to this program that uh, you're going to agree with whatever is said or shared with you. But listen to what he asks, because he too catches uh, you know, some, some interesting questions rising from the hysteria that's going on around us. He says, whenever there's a lot of hysteria around, danger, around dangers to public health, which he says is a phrase invented to control people. You see, escalating calls for more and more dehumanizing mandates. But he says you have to stop at some point and ask, why are people destroying all the things that make life good? In other words, what do they hope to achieve? Now, here's his point. Every single human being will die. There is no escape from that. If you could reduce your odds of dying younger than average by a few fractions of a percent, even a few percent, by locking yourself away and living a fearful, pathetic existence, would it be worth it? Now, his answer is, of course not. Which is why people get in cars and drive every day. It's not worth it because life is not measured just in minutes lived and increasing the statistical probability of more of them. That's not life. That's death. Life is about the quality of minutes lived not just the quantity. Now, quality takes work. Risks, ups, downs, unknowns, challenges overcome, battles won. It cannot be had with fearful avoidance. Isaac Morehouse says people who wish to impose quality-destroying restrictions on themselves and their fellow human beings claim it's in the name of preventing some tiny percentage increase in the odds of death. And he says they're partly right, at least it is, in the name of death. Death is their god, fearful and terrible, and they will sacrifice anything and everything at its feet. Public health fearmongers are trapped in a death cult without knowing it. He says most of these health concerns are completely overblown, if not fabricated entirely. But even when they are not, they ought not lead us into death cultism. He says the only way to be free is to step back, and find deeper meaning than a maximization of minutes lived and a slavish fear of death. That's a pretty power-packed concentrate of common sense. But I have to agree, it's, it's hard to be the person who steps outside the hysteria and refuses to succumb to it, but I'm so grateful for the people who do. And there, there are so many people, so many bureaucracies at work that hide behind COVID. It's, it's their incentive to hide behind it. Well, you know, we're just doing what we can to keep things safe. We're just, we're saving lives here. You know, this ain't the Boy Scouts. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm dead serious when I tell you I think there will come a day after we've returned to our senses when you are going to see trials that will rival the Nuremberg Trials in terms of getting accountability from the people who made decisions that knowingly harmed other people and their livelihoods and maybe contributed to their early deaths in the name of, we were just trying to save them, or I was just doing my job. I was just following orders. It was an excuse that didn't stand at the Nuremberg trials, and I hope that there's some form of accountability. And it's not because, you know, I don't want to see vengeance, vengeance, I just want to see that kind of accountability so that people don't make the same foolish mistake again. There's a great essay by Jim Quinn. This is from The Burning Platform, published on lewrockwell.com today. You'll find a link to it in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. And Jim talks about taking a walk in Cape May. He says uh, they, they took advantage of a beautiful fall day and walked out to the very end of the Cape May Lighthouse State Park. And he says, this, by the way, is an example of what government can do, right? Preserve a natural habitat without glitz or commercialization. We're talking miles of wetlands and walking trails. The lighthouse built in 1859 by the U.S. Army is still functioning today. Two previous lighthouses succumbed to the sea, but this lighthouse is a majestic structure reaching 157 feet into the sky. Now, there's also a structure out there called Battery 223, a crumbling concrete structure from World War II which was designed to protect against invasion by German forces. Now, this structure was built with six-foot-thick reinforced concrete walls and a thick blast-proof roof. The entire building was covered with earth. The six-inch guns had a nine-mile range, but he said, It's an interesting relic from our past, and its dilapidated condition struck me as symbolic of our crumbling empire. Here's the thing, though. He says, I couldn't write a post without acknowledging the human reality that I witnessed while walking along these trails on a stunningly beautiful, sunny, 58-degree day in late November. He says, the four of us were unmasked because, well, masks don't work and certainly aren't necessary outside while walking. But he said, as they were driving to the park, he says, I noticed a few bike riders on the side of the road wearing masks while biking. And he says, I thought to myself, what the heck? That's completely idiotic. Then he says, we began walking along the miles of trails And he says, the park was moderately busy, but you passed someone every few minutes. He says, he would estimate 80% of the people we passed on the trails were masked and fearful of us unmasked hooligans. And he says, I can only imagine their thoughts as they wondered why we were risking their lives being so careless. Now, his reaction, I think, is, is something that most of us might understand. He says, I was disgusted by the lack of critical thought exhibited by these people. He says I might have understood it if it was only if it was only people over 70 years old wearing the masks but most of these people were young. They have a virtually zero risk of dying from this flu. They have a virtually zero risk of catching it by uh, by walking on a walking trail at a state park. But they silently and obedient obediently do as they are told by their overlords. And his point is this, he says, I'm saddened by how easily the totalitarians have been able to use fear, propaganda, lies, and misinformation to turn the vast majority of Americans into compliant sheep. He said, it's so clear to me that this engineered flu panic is nothing more than another chapter in the scheme to enslave global populations under the thumb of global elitist billionaires who want to control us and enrich themselves. By the way, he has a nice excerpt from uh, V from Vendetta, V's speech to London, which captures the essence of what's happening. The bottom line is, this kind of stuff can't happen without our consent. So that may be a subject you want to revisit in your, you know, spare time or when you're doing some contemplation. What do I give my consent to and why do I give that consent and can I withdraw it? You might be surprised at what you discover about yourself.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to
1: the show. I had a wonderful conversation with a couple of friends last night, uh, one of whom I've known for quite a few years, the other I just met recently. Steve and David are uh, both uh, native Canadians, but what really impresses me, I mean, look, I'm impressed with the fact they're Canadian. I I was impressed when I drove through Canada a few years ago and uh, thought, wow, this is actually kind of a cool place. People are very friendly. It's beautiful scenery. There's a lot to like about Canada. But what I really like about these two gentlemen is they have a sense of purpose. They actually have a, a great program. I, I don't know what, the, what to call it. It's, it's a show. It's a, it's a video streaming show, podcast. It's, it's digital media. But they're having conversations in such a way that uh, it's, it's an actual conversation. It's not just you know a bunch of uh, people with disparate points of view shouting over the top of each other. Why are they doing this? It's because both of them recognize that there is, there is a need to talk about some difficult subjects and to ask sometimes difficult questions, but to do it in such a way that it's actually a productive conversation. And so we talked for about an hour last night, and it was, it was a very free-flowing conversation. It actually went a totally different direction than I had thought it might go but I think the thing that impressed me the most is these are two individuals who out of a sense of of personal calling or a sense of personal duty have decided to step up and create a platform from which truth can be examined and spoken freely. And I think that is a marvelous example to the rest of us. And it makes me stop and think about how easily most of us find ourselves getting wound up and that, that may sound like a judgment or like, well, gee, are you saying we're weak of character and that's why we get wound up? No, but I'm going to suggest that maybe we do have some responsibility. If we make it too easy for other people to wind us up like a toy, maybe there's something we could do to, as as I've said before, become an unplayable piece on their chessboard. There's a great article by Jeff Thomas. This was published this morning on lootrockwell.com. It's called Winding Up Americans. Consider what he has to say and then consider what you and I can do at the individual level to reverse this trend. He says, for the last four years, Americans have become increasingly polarized. Divided between Democrat crusaders who are determined to save America from becoming a racist, sexist, Nazi dictatorship under Donald Trump versus Republican crusaders who are determined to save America from becoming a liberal Marxist state under a democratic reign. Now, he says, this fervor has become so extreme that families can no longer meet up for the holidays without a conversational blow up. No longer are people entitled to their opinions. This has become a crusade between good and evil. I'm good. You're evil. And Jeff Thomas says the absurd nature of this dichotomy has reached the point that even Dr. Phil is increasing his viewership by featuring disputes between siblings who are on opposite sides of the political divide and no longer speaking to each other. He says, at this point, all that remains to be done by the networks would be to air a red versus blue television game show in which contestants compete with their own family members to win the White House. Now, until November, a great majority of Americans appear to have been hoping the November election would end this strife one way or the other. Ha <laughs> That didn't happen. He says, my take on this has been that the opposite would happen after the 3rd of November. The fireworks would increase exponentially. After the election, the election would be hotly contested by whomever was the apparent loser. And he says this should easily have been foreseen, as the media on the right have insisted for months that democratic encouragement for mail-in ballots was a precursor to election fraud. And similarly, media on the left have insisted for months that Donald Trump's suggestion that he may not accept the election results meant that he was planning a coup after he presumably inevitably lost the election. And now the battle has been met. Jeff Thomas says it's estimated that 93% of all Fox watchers are Republicans and 95% of MSNBC watchers are Democrats. Since neither side watches the other's news program, each side is cognizant of, of only its own team's heavily slanted rhetoric. He says the conservative media is awash with details of voter fraud by Democrats while the liberal media states with equal conviction that Mr. Trump and his lawyers have provided no details whatsoever. Therefore, those who voted Republican will conclude by watching their own, quote, unbiased news channel that Democrats have tried to steal the election and thereby steal control of the country. And those who voted Democrat will conclude by watching their own unbiased news channel that Republicans have tried to steal the election and thereby steal control of the country. And here Jeff Thomas asks the question, how did this get to be so bad? He says Americans have not been so wound up nor so polarized since 1861 at the beginning of the Civil War. Indeed, he says the post-election fervor is as strong as though Fort Sumter had just been fired upon. More importantly, though, he asks, what will be the outcome? Will the courts rule against the claims of Mr. Trump? If so, that decision will enrage an already angry right-wing crowd refusing to vacate the White House and defending it against the pinko mob. Or will the courts rule in favor of Mr. Trump? And if so, that decision will unleash nationwide riots' intent on bringing down the evil dictator. Either way, he says, we can anticipate that the U.S. will be in flames. If for any reason the level of strife is insufficient, those with deep pockets will hire squads of shills as mercenary soldiers. The populace will be in terror. Republican voters will beg the federal government to bring in the troops to contain Antifa and the BLM mob. Democratic voters will beg the federal government to bring in the troops to quell the Republican militias. In such an upheaval, he says, the one thing both sides will have in common is they will both beg for the creation of a police state. Ding, 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 ding. Listen to what this man is saying, because this is a very real threat. And he says the federal government will never answer that call. Martial law would be declared possibly as a, quote, temporary measure until normalcy has returned. But what if normalcy doesn't return? What if pockets of violence continue to pop up all over the map with regularity? If that occurs, martial law would need to continue for as long as it was deemed necessary, which would be likely to translate into a permanent police state. At one time, the media was, for the most part, impartial and benign. But in recent decades, it has been bought out by four large corporations, and some of those corporations own and direct both liberal and conservative networks, which would seem to be at odds with each other. However, they are not. Jeff Thomas says, Today the objective of the media is not to offer news, it is to create strife. To pit one half of the electorate against the other. Now, in doing so, the ruling elite have the justification to lock the entire USA down under martial law. Once that's been accomplished, the elite may do as they please, as in all countries where a police state has been achieved, such as Nazi Germany, Mao's China, Stalin's Russia. Once military control has been put into place nationwide, meaningful protest ends. He says in each of the above cases, the populace was whipped into a frenzy of hate and violence against the Jews or the aristocracy or whatever other demon had been invented. But he says the real objective and result were the subjugation of the populace. Here's his point. The American populace has been programmed like wind-up toys, with the ruling elite winding up the keys on their backs as tightly as they will go. When the levers are released, Americans will act dramatically, and in many cases, blindly. But Jeff Thomas says at this point it's not too late for people to stand back, take a deep breath, and ask themselves if they're not being conned into their own subjugation. But it would appear that they've been wound up so tightly that such such objectivity is unlikely to occur. However, he warns if they do not step back, they risk losing what remains of their once proud democracy. Now, he's writing from across the pond, so forgive him for using the word democracy when he means republic, but you get his point. And to me, this illustrates, well, it illustrates one of the reasons why I do daily what I do. And it's not to further polarize you and to, you know, get you roaring for your team and waving the flag harder. It's to think more clearly about what is going on and whether or not we are being played like a fiddle at a barn dance. I mean, I can't tell you that what Jeff Thomas has described here is absolutely the truth, and you know there can be no doubt about it. But I will say it does make a certain amount of sense. It seems plausible to me. And if that's the case, the questions I'm asking myself are, how can I avoid playing into that kind of a trap? I don't have all the answers, but as you know... I am happy to explore them day in and day out right here behind this microphone. And by the way, I would love your input. So if you find yourself on my website, thebryanhideshow.com, if you look at the show notes, you will find there's a prominent little leave a comment featured there. Leave me a comment. Give me some feedback.
0: I'd like to know what you're thinking. This is The Brian Hyde Show.